I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is Lisa Klein Ransom. She's the author of more than 20 books for young readers, including the award-winning Finding Langston trilogy. She's also received several honors, including a Coretta Scott King Award, the Scott O'Dell Award for Historical Fiction, and an NAACP Image Award nomination. Her new book is called For Lamb. It follows the story of a young girl named Lamb and her family. They live in the Deep South during the Jim Crow era. The book is a compelling, sometimes horrifying look at the lives of one Black family in the time of lynchings and many other injustices. It's a powerful book, and it's a reminder that only by knowing our past, even the horrific parts, can we hope to make a better future. As a content note for our listeners, we do talk about lynching and other injustices that are depicted in the book. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it is a treat to be here. Thank you so much, Crystal. So you wrote this book as an homage to the women and the girls who were victims of racially motivated violence. What happened that made you think that this is the story I want to tell? Well, I'm a person who is always drawn to the hidden histories, um, generally of people of color. And I'm usually looking um, at history through the lens of of people of color. And so when I visited um, the Equal Justice uh, Museum and Memorial in Montgomery, I thought that I was going for one reason. I thought that I was going to kind of, you know, learn more about um, the history of lynching and racial violence in this country. Um, It's hard to be a Black person in this country and not know about lynching. Um, Nearly every Black person I know has kind of grown up hearing stories of lynching or knowing someone in their family maybe who has been somehow somehow in their past who has had an experience with lynching. And so when I went, I thought I knew something about lynching. We certainly all heard the stories of Emmett Till, the 15-year-old boy who was lynched. But when I went to this museum in Montgomery, one of the things that really took me back and really shocked me was seeing the names of so many women who had been lynched and who were the victims of lynching. And so once I read those names and saw name after name, and these were not the targets, the intended targets of mob violence, but they were often the people, women who were there when they they were the wives and mothers and sisters of the intended victims of mob violence who were lynched. Um, and so I thought, wow, these are stories that we haven't heard. And I thought maybe, just maybe, I could write a story to kind of memorialize these women. The history of lynching, it's interesting because I was having a chat with some younger people not too long ago who were just like felt that that was ancient history and were kind of surprised when I said, no, there are people alive today, mothers and grandparents and maybe great grandparents who had firsthand experience. This is, this is not some distant part of America's past. 
sadly, um, yes, yeah, it is absolutely. Again, you know, it, it's it's hard to be black in this country and not have some connection to lynching. So yeah, and you know, there were there were cases up until the 1990s, even um, where people have been lynched. So it is something that's still, I think, prevalent and still we have a deep connection to in this country. I want to talk a little bit about the book. While lynching may be maybe one of the most visible horrors, you know, experienced in this part of our history, what was so powerful about this book for me is the day-to-day fear that Black people lived with that was integrated so much into their lives. And there's one scene in particular that stands out, and I, I will admit I just kind of lost it reading this book several times oh. and this scene in particular uh, one of your characters Chester served in the war and his mm-hmm. father was so proud of him so proud that he made it through four years of war came home and then one day the sheriff shows up at their door and says that there's this law that Chester can't wear his uniform for more than three days and that if he shows up in town again wearing his uniform this man who served his country that he's going to be arrested and it's just it's just so crushing. Was there, did that come up in your research? Was that based on an actual experience or? Yes. And I, again, I, I've never been um, someone who loved history as a, as a child. And so, and certainly, certainly even if, probably if I, I were a student of history, I don't think that these were the stories and the, the parts of history that I probably would have heard about in my classrooms. This is something that I, I've never heard in my life. I, I certainly knew the Black soldiers were discriminated against. Black soldiers were incredibly patriotic. I mean, they knew that they faced this, this discrimination at home, and yet they went overseas and signed up and registered in large numbers fighting for this country, hoping somehow that fighting for liberty and freedom meant that they would also experience it when they returned home. Yet when they got home, this is these are the types of obstacles and injustices they would face coming home. And so to, to read about the fact that these types of Jim Crow laws were in existence, that you, a Black soldier, could not wear a uniform for more than three days or they would be jailed. I, whatever the book that I was reading, I had to put it down and just take a breath, as as I often do when I'm reading. It's, it's as if I am reading fiction when I'm reading these things. I am just still shocked when I'm when I'm reading these pieces of history. You just you're just you're still. I'm still often in shock when I'm reading. It's it's just such a commonplace thing. And I think that when we think about everything that Black Americans went through, and even even up through the Civil War or or Civil Rights era, even through today, we don't think about these day-to-day humiliations. And one of your characters, Marion, who is the mother in this book, and this is what I talk about when I say that they've integrated this into into their day-to-day lives, she never got to be who she wanted to be. And Mm -hmm took in all of this fear to a point where I think it affected how she was as a mother. She loved her children more than anything, as we really see by the end of the book, but was hard on them. And it's because of that fear. And what struck me is 
I don't know that that's really changed so much for Black mothers today. It has absolutely not changed for Black mothers. Um, I am a mother of four. I have um, four now young adult children. And I think that Black mothers have to parent in a way that balances a certain level of hope that you want your children to live freely and openly and be able to dream. And you want to tell them, you can do whatever you want to do. The sky is the limit. But you also recognize that we live in a country where there are people who treat them differently, that they go out into this world where they are judged in a certain way and that they are not safe. And so, you know, I have one son and three daughters, and, you know, we have had to have talks with them. We've had to have talks with my son in a way that I know that a lot of other mothers of different ethnicities maybe have not, you know, you know, wearing a hoodie, um, what to do when you're stopped by the police. These are conversations where in essence, you're, you're protecting them, but in the, in the same way, you're also saying that you have to limit yourself in certain ways. And those are really difficult conversations to have. It, it is so, it's so disheartening to be in a country where you're telling, other people are telling their kids, go, just be, be free. And then we as black parents have to say, but also be careful. And you're in some ways telling your children to be, you have to be afraid too. It's, it's a very, very difficult balance and fine line that we walk. And, and this is what is so well done in this book. I know we talk about code switching and the way behaviors change. And we see that when the family goes to the eye doctor yes. and Marion, who is not necessarily a meek and mild woman at home, <laughs> exactly, suddenly has to put on this whole new persona. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so the ways in which she speaks to the doctor and the ways in which she conducts herself and in some ways makes herself smaller. It, it, and the, the sad part is, is she's doing this in an effort to make um, herself and her children uh, more appealing in some ways to the doctor, make him treat them better. But as you can see, it makes no difference to him. He still sees them as less than. So all of the code switching and, you know, at one point, Leah mentions that her mother dresses in a way and puts on a nicer dress um, so that the doctor will see her differently. But he doesn't. He never sees her differently. He never sees her as as, a, as his equal. And it is, you know, it is a, a reality, a constant reality. And so while this book takes place in the 1940s, you know, what we see is that there is so much that has not changed. There are several characters in the book, and you write it with them sharing the point of view from chapter to chapter. Each of their voices is so remarkably vivid and different and alive. As a writer, what was it like for you with all of these characters taking up space in your head? Well, I I, I initially thought that I could maybe write it from the point of view of just Lamb. And then I realized that I, that I couldn't do it, that there were just too many other voices speaking to me. And I... I know sometimes, I mean, you interview a lot of writers and you, you hear a lot of different ways of, of telling a story, but um, I am definitely a person who writes from a very kind of 
organic or, you know, I'm a, I'm a pantser. And I, you know, I had started with this one idea, but I couldn't get these other voices out of my head. Like I could, I was writing it and I, you know, I thought I would, you know, here was, I could hear Lamb, but at the same time, I could really, really hear Marion coming through. And in fact, um, at one point, Marion kind of overtook the story and I recognized, you know, I'm writing young adult, you know, I'm not writing an adult, <laughs> an adult book. So I had to pull Marion back a little bit and let Lamb um, take the lead. And, you know, I'm thankful I have an editor who kind of helps me guide the story. We had to shift the, the order of the chapters so that um, Lamb's story kind of led the way and we moved Marion um, a little bit later in the story so that, you know, we, we knew Lamb first before we knew Marion. I think initially I had Marion leading the story. So, you know, it, it was it, it, it was a challenge and, and, you know, working with an editor and recognizing who your audience is allows you to kind of shift and play around with, with, the, uh, with the point of view. I know writers are told not to read the reviews, but I went and read the reviews of this. Oh, and I oh, don't know if you're aware, oh. but a lot of people want a Marion story. They want ah, so they you want know, that's, that. That's really, really. Yeah. yeah. I, oh, okay. You know, I'm, I'm in a writer's group and I have this um, just an incredible, incredible group of women. Um, Fox North is in it and and Alyssa Wishingrad and, and Ann Berg and Virginia Woolf, Steph Tolan. And I got the, my initial, when I was initially sharing um, my manuscript, Kelly Braffitt was also in there. And I was initially sharing my manuscript and some of the feedback I got was, wow, this reads kind of as an adult novel and we're really hearing and feeling Marion's story. And I thought, are they crazy? That's not true. That's not true. And, it, you know, and that's when I think my editor also said, let's pull back from Marion. And so I think it's really funny that you're, yeah. that, that's the review that you read. Wow. I could really feel her. And I think in part, you know, you're writing from your perspective. Um, you're writing the story, but you're also writing um, from a personal place. And I think as a mother and having those experiences, yes, you're probably a little bit of that is me. That's me and Marion. I think it spoke to a lot of people. That's so, interesting. Yeah. So if you ever want to do a fully Marion's point of view or Marion's life, I think you've already got an audience for that. So could you write a letter to my editor and just let her know that? <laughs> I'll do the pitch for you. It'll okay, thank great. you. <laughs> so at, at I don't know if it's the heart because I feel like, you know, the people that you write about are the heart, but there is this relationship between Lamb and a girl named Marnie that becomes the catalyst for, for what happens. Marnie is a white girl and she's the daughter of this local doctor that we've been talking about. And she strikes up a friendship with Lamb, which initially kind of against Lamb's wishes, she's trying to be polite and not tell this white girl what's up with you. You know, yes, like this is not exactly. okay. Uh -huh. So talk a little about that dynamic. Was that part of the original idea you had when you started writing the book? It wasn't. It The story just kind of evolved. And it evolved because I was reading, as part of my research, I wound up reading um, a book called The Elegy of Mary Turner. And it was the story of a lynching of a woman who was actually pregnant. And in this book, it had a list of names of many of the women who had been lynched. 
And one of the women who had been lynched was a woman named Lamb Whittle. And I tried to do some research. I couldn't find any information about Lamb Whittle. And so I was trying to imagine a woman named Lamb who had been lynched. And I thought, what an interesting name. I'm really drawn to names. And I feel like often names, you know, people live live to their names or live into their names and embody their names. And I thought, I wonder, you know, what this lamb was like. It's such a name of innocence and the idea of sacrifice and all of these things. What would her life have been like and why was she lynched? And so I wondered, you know, what, like a, a young girl, how would, how would that have ever happened? And initially, actually, I had the character of Lamb being lynched, and I actually changed that. But then I wondered how that could happen. And, and I saw a photograph of, you, of Eudora Welty's about uh, this train track, this uh, elevated track. And there was this photograph in Jackson, Mississippi in 1940 of a, a black girl and a white girl, and they were approaching each other on this elevated track. And you would have had no chance but to just cross each other on this track. And I thought, maybe that's how these two start talking. And that's where the idea came from, that somehow they meet on this track. And the story kind of developed from there. Of course, I went back and thought, well, how did they meet before that? And that's how I, that's how the story kind of, just kind of worked my way backward. I really was angry with Marnie. Um, <laughs> you weren't alone. Yes. Yes. So that's a pretty natural reaction that you're getting from people. Yes. And I, I think that the, these, the, the conversations that Marnie and Lamb have had, these are, I think, again, bringing it to contemporary times. I think these are conversations that black people and white people have that are difficult and hard but important conversations. Um, I think that we, in, in general, I think that that it's often people don't understand each other's, um, uh, their situations and Marnie completely, is completely unaware of what's happening. And she is unaware of the danger in which, in particular, she is putting Lamb in her cluelessness is for her it's just cluelessness but for lamb it's complete and utter danger and um, their conversations are ones that are similar in some ways to conversations that i have had with over a number of years from childhood through adulthood and so i was able to really draw on my own experiences to write the dialogue between marnie and lamb I'm one of those readers, especially when it's a book that's just staying with me, that I try to imagine what the lives of the characters have been after the book ends, when we uh-huh. move forward. Did Marnie change? I, the, I have to say, this is one story where I don't know what happened to Marnie. Usually I know, and I think about what happens to my characters after, and I don't know what happened to her. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know what her experience was during the last scenes. I won't do any spoiler here, but I don't know what happened at the end. I don't know what the impact was for her. Hmm. 
the ending of the book, um, again, we're not going to spoil that, but I, I will say that I don't think I'm ever going to forget this book. Um, and there was a lot in there for a book that's meant for young adult readers. Did you ever wonder if you were going too far? I did. Um, but the, here's the thing. I feel that um, in my research, there was so much that I had to read, so much I had to see. And there was a point at which I wasn't sure how much I should write. And then I thought of all the people who had to experience this on some level. I read the story of an 80 year old woman whose husband didn't take off his hat fast enough. And they came to his home and they lynched him and his dog. And they came back two days later and they said to her, if you do not remove him, cut him down, that they would come back and burn her house down. And this 80 year old woman had to climb up on a ladder and cut her husband down. And I thought, if this woman could get up on a ladder and cut down her own husband and all these other people have had to deal with all they've had to deal with. I think that I can write one scene in a book so that people can see, read, and experience the pain of what Blacks have been experiencing for years. And so I, I had to write it. This maybe is too personal a question if so that's fine how did you take care of yourself writing this because i cannot imagine that this left you unmarked there were days it was just so hard i would just sit at my desk and i would cry there are some days i would just close the book and get up and take a walk and read something else um there's a book that i looked at called On Sanctuary, three quarters of the book were lynching photographs. And I can't say that I looked at more than five or 10 of those photographs. And I thought, I, I, I've, seen, I've seen many lynching photographs throughout my lifetime, but I could never sit and just look at photograph after photograph. They said, I'm not, I am actually not going to do that. I'm not. I've, I've, I've seen and experienced enough and I'm not going to just keep doing it. I, I also couldn't help but think that this is a, this book is one that uh, some leaders in some States are probably going to want to ban. Um, I'm sure the state of Florida, Texas, Virginia, no one is ever going to see this book. I hope that people will still order it and, and um, you know, it for themselves, but I, you know, school districts I'm sure won't, won't see it. Unless we keep, unless we keep fighting, unless we keep fighting, let's, let's see what happens there. What is the thing that I know, I know the common question is, what do you want readers to take away from this book? But what is the thing that you took away from writing this book? I think uh, what, what is most important for me, I think, is 
that we see, especially now, the dangers in silence and um, complicity and being a bystander. And I also think the dangers in revealing the truth in history. I, I also find it so fascinating the ways in which it is so easy for us to talk about, like I, I mentioned throughout the book about they're talking about Nazis, how horrible these Nazis are. Oh, can you believe these Nazis, the atrocities they're committing? And here in our own country, no one can talk to, talk about the atrocities that we are, we have committed against Black people. We hung Black people in such large numbers for barely, and for, for, for nothing, for, for, you know, for brushing up against someone, for not taking off a hat, for bragging, for for nothing, for being accused of, of crimes that they didn't commit. They're just hanging them one after the other. And yet we're so willing to point our fingers at other people in other countries and no one could ever look at themselves honestly and speak to the crimes that they themselves are committing. I just find it fascinating. We'll find that in our own history books and textbooks in school in schoolrooms, but we won't ever talk about the lynchings and the violence committed against people in our own country. So it's that I find fascinating. That I think is an important takeaway that we can't talk about the truth of our own history. What we've done to Native Americans and Japanese in this country, that, that we will never discuss. But you still ended this book with a little bit of hope. I did, because I want people to see the ways that the Black community throughout this, these atrocities remains strong, that Black family remains strong. Again, this is a narrative I think that has been um, perpetuated throughout that Black families aren't strong, that we don't value education. Again, I'd like to just uh, offer a counter narrative here but we've always valued education. Families have always remained strong. And that even despite these horrible atrocities and violence that have rained down upon us, we continue to get up each day, continue to work hard, continue to value education. And through our faith and family and community, we're still standing. Lisa, thank you so much for talking with me today, and thank you for writing this book. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for your for your words and for your support and for your understanding of this important story. Thank you. Lisa Klein Ransom's book, For Lamb, is available now. If you like what you're hearing, please feel free to follow our podcast. It's available on most podcast apps. You can also listen to Off the Page on our website at wskg.org, where you will also find our past episodes. Off the Page only exists because of the support of listeners like you who make a financial donation to your NPR station. If you haven't yet donated, please consider that in support of keeping conversations with authors about important books alive. Go to wskg.org and click on the red donate button. 
Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. <laughs>